Welcome to East Lansing Crime Warp, a podcast hosted by Verena Danielle and Wajiha Kamal. Each week, we'll update you on current crime, and then we'll take you back to a crime blast from the past. Thank you for listening, and stay tuned. But first, some local crime updates. First up is on April 7th, an investigation conducted by Ingham County animal control officers resulted in the seizure of animals in a home in North Lansing. Officials from Potter Park Zoo and other experts aided in the investigation and seizure. Over a dozen dogs and cats, exotic animals and pocket pets were taken from the home. Um, If you'd like to assist in the care of these animals, you can donate Perina one cat food and financial donations for medical care. The cat food and monetary donations can be dropped off at Mason Animal Shelter, but monetary donations can also be made online to the Ingham County Animal Shelter Fund at www.icasfund.org donate. Next up, on April 9th uh, at 7.40 a.m., ELPD responded to a vehicle versus bicycle accident at the intersection of Abbott and Sagnia. The bicyclist was found on the scene, but the vehicle left the area. The vehicle was a small dark colored SUV that was heading eastbound. If you have information on the accident or on the vehicle and its driver, please contact ELPD at 517-319-6897 or 517-351-4220. Today, we'll begin the final part of our multiple part series on the Michigan murders. Um, Please watch the last two parts if you haven't. this will not make much sense if you don't. With all this being said, you know, we wish to illuminate the victim story and sort of focus on the victims over glamorizing the sick and twisted individual. We'll be diving deep and taking our time on this info along with our normal commentary. Special thanks to the Eastern Echoes podcast. They also did a multiple part series on the Michigan murders. Um, as this case affected their university quite deeply. So you know, credits to them for excellent, accurate information that we will be using here. So we recommend you also check out their podcast and while listening to ours as well, and we hope you enjoy. Disclaimer, this episode discusses sexual assault, depictions of violence, and murder. Please take care of yourself and be safe. Roxy Phillips. 17-year-old Phillips was brutally killed in California. She was last seen returning from mailing a letter. A cutlass cut her off in Salinas. The car had a Michigan license plate, as victim, as witnesses reported. Phillips was found in Picadro Canyon outside of Salinas. She had been beaten and strangled with the belt of her floral dress and then dumped in the canyon. So we definitely established that he was using um, articles of his victim's clothing to, you know, in, in the act um, in the last episode. But again... Part of his MO is definitely like crimes of opportunity. He's just coming upon people who are going about their business, you know, thinking nothing of it, aren't expecting this. And he, he sees the opportunity in the moment. Yeah. And I think that makes him so incredibly dangerous because he does see, Mm -hmm. he picks up victims because they're victims of opportunity. um, And he targets them based on how easy it is for him. And I think that's obvious because of the fact that he's also in California doing this. So this has reached beyond state borders. It's a national, it's a national case now. And I think this all could have been avoided, but I obviously, which we've talked about numerous times with the failed police work in this case, but it's reached a point where it's reached such 
a tipping point um, because this is affecting people on a national level and it's scary and it's horrible. And um, this person was let loose. This person was enabled. And there's so many aspects of that by itself. And yeah, he uses their clothes against them. He uses anything he can find. And I think that's the scariest part. Karen Sue Beinman. On July 23rd, 18-year-old EMU student Beinman was reported missing by her roommate. Three days later, her nude body was found laying face down alongside the Huron River Parkway. The cause of death was strangulation, but the blunt force injuries to her head and face could have also been fatal. Beinman was tortured. Her skin had been stripped from some parts of her body. The tissue underneath had been exposed. Chemical burns were found along her neck, breasts, shoulder, and inside her throat. She was forced to inject the chemicals. Beinman had been sexually assaulted and a handkerchief was placed inside her mouth. Her underwear was, was found, which is different than the other cases. Investigators found semen and 509 blonde hair clippings on it. The hair did not belong to Beinman. She was brunette. Yeah, again, with the planting evidence of other crimes that he'd committed um, in a new scene, that and the way that he uses different forms of killing, and well, some of them are similar, but, um, but he's introducing like chemical burns and ingesting chemicals. Like he's making these very gruesome on purpose and he wants people to know that these are connected even though they're happening in slightly different ways. Yeah, I think he's experimenting. Absolutely, yeah. And that's very, that's a terrifying thought because this is definitely something that's enjoyable, you know, like this is a crime of opportunity thing, but it's also something that he's like in the back of his mind everywhere he goes, he's looking around for the next person. Yeah, he definitely finds gratification from it. Mm -hmm. I mean, he's using chemicals. She was forced to inject chemicals. Like, the, his tactics are evolving, which we've talked about. You know, we've seen this before, but it's evolving even more. And that's so incredibly scary, obviously. But I don't know what else to say. Like, it's just, it's evolution in the worst, worst way possible. John Norman Collins. Police were able to conduct a successful news blackout. This allowed investigators to stake out the location of Beinman's body to wait and see if the killer would return to the scene. Her body was replaced with a mannequin. The next morning at 2 a.m., an officer spotted a young man running from the scene. However, the storm waterlogged his radio, so the officer was unable to immediately report the sighting. The owner of a wig shop, Joan Gosch, saw Beinman arrived at her shop on a motorcycle. Goach and her assistant saw a man sitting on the Triumph motorcycle. They both got a good look at him. The clerk at the chocolate shop also noticed the bike as well. EMU campus police officer Larry Mathewson heard the employee's descriptions and remembered he was on patrol July 23rd. He saw Collins on his motorcycle around campus. Female co-workers reported Collins found joy in recounting graphic murder details. He said he knew these details from his uncle, Police Sergeant David Leake. Like. like denied ever talking to his nephew about the murders. At an in-person police lineup, Ghosh identified Collins as the boy waiting for Karen. The day after Bindman's body was found, police visited Collins and his roommate, Arnold Davis, at their Emmett Street apartment. Collins said no to a polygraph test, 
His roommate later reported that after the police had left, Collins left their apartment with a blanket-covered box, which allegedly contained a burlap purse, a woman's purple shoe, and a rolled-up denim-like material. When Collins returned, the box was gone. The likes asked Collins to house it while they were away on vacation. When they returned, they found items missing from the house, including black spray paint, ammonia, and washing powder. They also found numerous paint marks across their basement floor. Like told police after he scrapped some of the paint off the floor and found suspicious stains. Police found small blood stains in nine different areas of the basement and blonde hair clippings. The clippings came from a pre-vacation haircuts Mrs. Like had given to her children. The blood stains were type A blood, Bindman's blood type. The same day, investigators confronted Collins about what they had found. Collins began crying. Then he insisted he knew nothing about Bindman's death. On July 29, 1969, Collins was arrested for the murder of Karen Sue Bindman. After his Michigan arrest, the car Collins drove to California was impounded. They found under one of the seats a dime-sized piece of fabric. It was the same fabric, same floral pattern, and same weave of dress as Phillips's. It matched the belt, and the fabric connected the two. See, what I'm interested to know more about is why he got rid of some evidence when you know that they're suspicious of him and not all of it because he definitely was reckless going to um going to house it for them and taking things that could clearly be used to cover up a crime um and then he also left evidence in his car um but he you know he was very careful to um to get rid of whatever it was that was in the box and um that's that's very interesting to me. I don't understand the um, the difference between what was in his car and the box. You know what I mean? Yeah, I think I don't know if this is right the right answer, obviously, but I think it's narcissism. Like this dude was on the top of the world. He was in, mm-hmm. he was enabled for so long they couldn't catch him. He grew bolder and bolder, and I think he just grew sloppy because of that. I mean, he reached he didn't think he'd be caught. I mean, yeah, this man like has such a complex that mm-hmm. he thinks he's beyond it all. And, you know, he didn't think it'd come crashing down on him. And he was doing it for so long. I mean, he was yeah. victims we know about. Who knows how many more he could, he has interacted with or he has killed or he has sexually assaulted. Like, we don't know how, exa- how long exactly this has been going on. Yeah, and the other thing about this segment that also stuck out to me is the unfortunate, um, you know, the timing of the the sighting of that man that was uh, running away from the mannequin that they had planted, and the the waterlogged radio. That's that's so unfortunate because they really could have, you know, gotten him red-handed right then and there. It would have all been over. That would have been enough evidence, I'm sure. And then also the way that he changed his behavior um, when he was confronted, um, you know, he was obviously very proud of what he did, the way he was able to toy with investigators and then, you know, crying and denying everything about it and acting like he was the victim. That's a very, you know, sharp change in behavior. And I think it's a show. Like, I don't think this person is capable of emotions. Like, I feel like I don't, I don't, he was crying because he was caught. Like that's yeah. 
like it's like it's crumbling down in front of him no longer this you know supreme being in his eyes who can get away with all this and I think that was the moment of realization for him and mm-hmm. he started crying but then he realized you know I can still salvage this somewhat you know I have to maintain this complex for myself and he just continued on with it like nothing happened and like it like he's not at fault here he's just avoiding guilt um and you know for people who you know maybe do not know who Collins is the second victim I believe Joan Shell she was she was the second victim and two eyewitnesses actually came forward two months after um her murder and they saw they said that um they saw Joan with John Norman Collins Collins was her neighbor from across the street and he was the East EMU student as well and he denied involvement when the police questioned him he said he was with his mom and the police didn't check his alibi so I mean I think that's pretty straightforward forward like that's quite straightforward here like yeah like he was 100% enabled you know yeah 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 I think we talked about this in the first episode, but I definitely think that if they had taken more care in the very beginning and checked his alibi, that would have knocked him down a few pegs and probably, you know, contained the situation. Yeah, like, his alibi was not questioned, and an alibi is the easiest thing to double check. Exactly. It doesn't require effort at all. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they had two victims at that point. I don't think, like... I think you can connect the dots between the two. Mm -hmm. And I think that they just refuse to. But I obviously cannot say that for sure because we don't know that. But that's my, that's me just theorizing here. The murder trial. Collins agreed to take a polygraph test with Washtenaw County Sheriff Doug Harvey. But he didn't. He confessed to his attorney beforehand and he was taken back to jail. In 1970, John Collins was tried for the murder of Bindman. During the trial, Collins was relaxed. He smiled at attorneys, his mother, and his family. On August 17th, Collins was found guilty by jury. He was sentenced to life without parole in prison. John was charged with murder in California for the strangulation of Phillips. But after his conviction for murdering Bindman in Michigan, he was not extradited. And he was never tried for any of the other girls' murders. Um, I do think that it's sad that he wasn't charged with um, with the other murders because those families definitely deserved, you know, that closure and justice. But he did get what he deserved um, in the end because he did have that life sentence. So, I mean, a little unfortunate, but at least there was some form of justice. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm glad he got life without parole, um, mm-hmm. especially because I feel like Oftentimes, I feel like a lot of, a lot of times, people like him are guaranteed parole, mm-hmm. um, and I think that evolves from a lot of different factors. But um, what really bothers me is that he was not extradited for the murder of Phillips. Like he was never tried for any of the other girls' murders, and I, he got that life without parole. So after that amount of time, if he's still alive, he can be released to the to the public but in that time period when he is in jail for that sentence he can't get parole but afterwards after he does his sentence and he's alive I think he can be released but I'm not sure how accurate that is 
because I'm hearing different things, but that's what I'm pretty sure. A life sentence is not a real life sentence. So I don't know if that changes your mind by a bit or if you have yeah. that on that. I, yeah, I don't think I knew that before. So yeah, that that is a little bit different. Yeah, and it's really aggravating. Mm-hmm. There's people on are waiting for the death penalty for crimes they did not commit. And there's people, you know, serving 25 year sentences for also, you know, minuscule crimes, not as big, not as big crimes as this, like burglary or something like robbery. Right. They're sentencing and they have longer sentences. The thing that I didn't understand is I can kind of, I can kind of comprehend the fact that he wasn't charged for, um, for crimes that he was not connected to, like if they didn't find any evidence on him or anything, but they they confirmed that he killed Phillips and then they they didn't extradite him because he was already sentenced in Michigan so yeah like that that part did um irk me a little bit and yeah the life sentence now like knowing that that is a little bit yeah I don't agree with that either yeah I think it it's so frustrating mm-hmm. um especially because like they had this charge down the Phillips one um, yeah, there was pure forensic evidence, I believe, from what we've heard, and he wasn't extradited. So, and I think I read that it was because of like politics, political reasons, but that still doesn't make much sense. <laughs> like, what political reasons are they that they cannot extradite this individual? Like, that's a sad excuse that they couldn't make that work. Absolutely. And I suppose one way to put it is. That's our justice system, justice with quotes, but um, yeah, that's fair. Prison, the aftermath. Collins is still reaching out to women. He's still, quote unquote, stalking women from prison, according to Shannon, who was writing to Collins. Um, he was a family member's friend of hers, and they began kind of like a relationship. Um, John claims that he is innocent during and after his trial. He said that he never knew Bindman and never spoke to her. So he's got a he's got a girlfriend in prison. You know, I've heard about a lot of these cases where convicted killers go to prison and they form relationships with women that they write to, like while they're in prison. And that's just such an interesting concept to me. I've never understood the dynamic there, but it happens a lot, it seems. So that's that's very interesting in this case we haven't had a case like that I don't think that we've done but yeah that's that's interesting um and the fact that he was also still stalking women you know sending unsolicited letters to random people you know he's convicted he you know he denies everything but he's still doing these same behaviors yeah I think I mean as I've said before um he's a narcissist Mm -hmm. Understanding. Um, he still claims that he's innocent. And remember, he cried. Like, there's no way. And he confessed to his lawyer. So, this is just a fa- facade that he's pulling up for, to ensure his supremacy in his own eyes and sort of influence other, you know, younger women, perhaps, or women in general. And I feel like that's such a common theme, especially with notorious killers like Ted Bundy and Jeffrey Dahmer. Like, women people will romanticize him and write him letters and have fan clubs and fan pages for him. And that's a whole different discussion, but 
that's just disgusting that mm -hmm. you know these people worship these individuals almost and i'm not talking like shannon um is doing that or the women he's stalking because i 100 believe them like he's definitely still um attacking women and manipulating women from his jail cell um but there's but i from my from what i've seen especially on tiktok like there's a there's a lot of fan pages for people like Dahmer, who from you know younger younger girls and i don't know why necessarily but yeah i mean i don't doubt that collins is influencing women from where he's from he's definitely stalking them um and shannon was fell victim to that and she's a survivor of that mm -hmm. but, there's so many elements. There's so many elements. Yeah, I I don't understand that fully either. I think there's a fine line between being interested in um, in true crime and you know MLs and the psychology behind it all because it is it is an interesting concept. But I think that at some point there is a line that shouldn't be crossed where you're then taking it too far and um, and fantasizing about it almost. If that makes sense. Yeah, and that's not like we're not saying that is the women that he Collins was right, right. stalking. That's like completely separate. I feel like, mm -hmm. but um, just like with more notorious killers, I find like I can find like edits on TikTok for them. Media portrays them, and we are the media here. Um, and there is a certain interest in them that we obviously both have. But I think there's a difference between like glamorizing them and just talking about them from a serious perspective perspective and a lot of the time in movies and stuff these people are like glamorized so mm -hmm. I think that's a conversation for a different day but I hope that makes sense yeah 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 that was our final episode in the Michigan murders miniseries as well as our final episode of the semester thank you for sticking with us we hope you enjoyed listening as much as we enjoyed recording every episode